Our epistle lesson is also our sermon text from the book of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Again, give your ear to God's holy word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your inspired and holy word. And we pray that as we read it and hear it, you would conform us into the image of your Son, that you would bless our study of it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Question 86 in the Heidelberg Catechism asks, Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone, through Christ, without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? Why must we yet do good works? It's a question that often puzzles us. What is the relationship between grace? What is the relationship between God's unmerited favor and hard moral effort? If God saves me, as the book of Ephesians teaches, by grace through faith, not of works, and that even the faith that God gives me is a gift, lest any man should boast, then why does Paul also lay such great stress on all of his letters in hard moral effort? Why does he lay such stress on obedience and killing sin and working righteousness? How do these fit together? When we think about this idea, we're so often prone to falling into one of two errors. We, even, we either think that if I work hard in obedience, then I must be contributing something to my salvation. I must be contributing my part. This is what God asks of me. Or we think that if God works his salvation for me and in me, then I don't need to work at all. Right? These are the two errors. that it, They're both errors, but it's easy to fall into either one, either thinking that if God is asking me to work righteousness and to uh, kill sin and to live the Christian life, then it must be because I'm contributing something. He wants something from me. Or we tend to think we get confused by all the passages that, that ask us for obedience because God is saving me by grace through faith. Aren't I just supposed to just rest in that and wait until the resurrection? This is not, neither of these are the scriptural understanding of grace and effort. Grace, God's unmerited favor towards us, is 
most certainly opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. Actually, a right understanding of God's grace for us in Christ motivates and empowers our hard moral effort, as we'll see in our passage today. Look with me at verses 12 and 13 of Philippians 2. If you have your Bibles, in verses, beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We read those verses, it's impossible, it's impossible to miss the fatherly care that Paul has for these people. He says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, as you have always obeyed those whom I love. These are people who loved Paul deeply and wanted to obey his teaching, wanted to please the apostle, wanted to please the Lord. And so he writes with great fatherly care. We've talked about that before, how much the Philippians and Paul knew and loved one another. And yet the passage is emphatically an exhortation. You can't miss this either. We are to be working, he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Be obedient. Do it. We are definitely to also be at work. And even more than that, the word that Paul uses, the single Greek word that Paul uses for work out, is one that means to do something with great or sustained effort. He's being emphatic about the effort that we are to be putting into working out our salvation. So we can't miss this. Paul is asking us to do things in this passage. But we need to take a moment and step back and look at these two things that I mentioned earlier. What does he say is the motivation for this hard work? And what empowers this hard work? Look what he says motivates this work. He begins with the word therefore in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we've already seen how important this word therefore is in this epistle. This is Paul giving us the reason the grounds for the work that we're supposed to be doing. What is it that are the grounds? What, what came just before this? You remember last week we talked about Christ's humility and his exaltation. How Christ emptied himself of his prerogatives and came and served us on the cross, dying and rising and ascending into heaven. And he says, therefore, work out your salvation. Paul's pointing out there's a logical connection between the work of Christ and the living of the Christian. Christ obeyed, it says, that he obeyed his heavenly Father unto death. He was obedient, even though it meant leaving heaven and having to go to the cross. Paul, beginning this exhortation with the word, therefore, he does it so that he he can underline the obvious implication. Those of us who are in Christ, who belong to Jesus, must also be obedient. And take notice of that. These are people who are forgiven by Christ. These are people who are united with Christ, who belong with Christ. This is not an exhortation to the unconverted. This is not an exhortation to non-Christians. Work your salvation so that God might approve of you. This is an exhortation to those whom he has just 
repeated the great gospel promise that Christ left heaven and came and died for them and is alive from the dead and united with them. Therefore, you are also to live like a Christian. You are also to be obedient. Remember last time that we said that true humility seeks after true glory. That is glory that is received by God. Therefore, he says, to motivate us in light of the fact that Christ was obedient and humble, and so the Father glorified and exalted him. And remember, Christ's obedience resulted in the forgiveness of our sins and the cleansing of all of our sins and the uniting of us with him by the Spirit. Therefore, obey, he says. Therefore, work out your salvation. If you belong to Christ today, God in Christ has served you. God in Christ has saved you. And God has promised to exalt all who humble themselves and are obedient to him. And therefore, Paul says, you also be obedient. That's our great motivation for the Christian life. And also notice in verse 13, the empowering. That was the motivation. What about the empowering for this life of obedience? He says, for, in verse 13, God, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So we are to be working. We are to be doing. But we are only working because God is working. God began a good work in you, Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 1. And he will continue to work in you. He said, he who began a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God began a work in us, in his people, in us individually, but us as a people. And he will continue to do it until the day of Christ, transforming our wills, giving us holy desires, and transforming our actions to conform, as it says in verse 13, to his good pleasure. This is a theme that runs all throughout the New Testament, that God is at work saving his people in the present, saving us from our sins right here and right now. As it says in Hebrews 13.21, He will make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So you see how we are surrounded, we are encompassed, by God's grace in our doing. We have Christ's forgiveness of our sins and our past. We have the promised glory of the future of all who will humble themselves and obey God. And in the present, we have the empowering work of God through the Spirit in our wills and in our actions, transforming the very things that we do. I love the quote from the theologian, John Murray, as as he meditated on this passage, he said this, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours. God works and we also work, but the relation is that because God works, we work. All of the working out of our salvation on our part is the effect of God working in us. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace 
and power is of God. God is at work in you, he says, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. This is why I think Paul says that we should work out this salvation with fear and with trembling. If you stop to think about the fact that when you will to do good, that is God himself willing to do good in you and through you. When you fight sin or when you obey, when you work righteousness, that is God himself at work in you and in the world. We're always with fear and trembling anytime we come near the holy and the righteous and the living God. But what Paul says in this verse is that the very willing that you do to do well is God in you. He's that close. He's that close to us in in our willing and our working. And so we live the Christian life with joy, but we live with fear and trembling, knowing that we are this close to God, that God is present in our very selves by His Spirit to work in us. Paul understood this concept in his own life and ministry when he said in 1 Corinthians 15, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I but the grace of God which was with me. Paul labored, Paul preached, Paul traveled, Paul fasted, he prayed, he was beaten, he was thrown in prison, he bore witness in front of kings. When Paul went to bed at the end of the day, Paul was very, very tired because he had exerted himself all day. And what does he say there though? That it was not I, but the grace of God which labored in me. God's grace laboring in us doesn't displace our wills or our actions or our doing, but it also doesn't displace the fact that our willing and our action are doing anything good that we do is God working in us. If you will the will of God, if you do the will of God in your life, you will be tired at the end of the day. It it will require hard moral effort, but the relationship between hard moral effort and grace is that all of our hard moral effort is a grace. It's from God. So while our working out or living out this salvation in Christ does require conscious effort and concentration, all of our activity takes place not in this legalistic spirit that we will have these autonomous works by which we may present ourselves with God, but instead with a spirit of humility and thanksgiving, recognizing that without Christ, we can do nothing. Without Christ, we can't do anything. He deserves all of the praise and glory. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 15, as he likened himself to the vine and us to the branches, producing fruit from him. He says, without me, you can do Nothing, but every branch that abides in me bears much fruit. This is a great metaphor for the Christian life. Paul uses this in in Philippians chapter 1 where he prays for them that they would bear fruit that would uh, resound to the praise of Christ on on the great day of Christ. This fruit bearing. The tree really does bear fruit. There really is effort that's put forth by the tree. And yet, in another way, the vine or the tree... It doesn't move, it doesn't work, it never seems to be worried or harried. It just intakes the grace that God gives and produces year in and year out. This is, this is the work of God in us. 
he says, work out your own salvation. What the point he's making is that Christ's work in us is comprehensive. It's not only that Christ forgave our sins in the past. It's not only that God will glorify us in the future as we are humble and obedient to him, but God is working in us right now. Christ rescued us from sin's guilt and punishment, and he did all of that apart from us. He obeyed in our place. He suffered in our place. He rose to victorious life in our place and even gives us the faith to receive that by his spirit. And yet on the other hand, in rescuing us in the present from sin's controlling power and working the fruit of righteousness in us, it's still God that's doing all of the work, and yet he does it through us. The link between God's grace and the Christian life is our spirit-empowered will and actions. And so we know, however, that we won't, receive, we won't achieve perfection perfect holiness in this life as long as sin abides with us and it will until the day of resurrection we're we're all going to fall short in some measure this work that God is doing remember from Philippians 1 is ongoing he will work it in you until the day of Christ so we're not going to find our justification before God's throne or even or even the change that the spirit is working in us we're not going to find that as our presentation before God we're going to plead the blood of the lamb But John does tell us um, that those who know Christ will obey his commandments. As we walk by his spirit in the here and now, being saved in the here and now, we will fulfill his designs for us and we'll begin to love and serve one another in humble obedience and to serve him with zeal. This is God's work in us. And so I I want to exhort you that if, if you've thought, one of, the, one of the other two, that if God saved me by grace, therefore I don't need to put any effort into the Christian life. I don't need to work at this at all. You need to put forth the effort to read, to understand, to obey the Lord's word. But if you are in the other camp and you believe that I need to work, I need to work hard because I must have something to present to God, you need to rest and know that it's God's work in you. It's God's work for you by Christ, but it's God's work in you in you, in the present. This is, this is the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in us. Then Paul turns and gives us a very specific application of our salvation to work out in verse 14. In verse 14 he says, Do all things without complaining and disputing. So verse 14 comes to us, as one person said, like a, a bucket of cold water. He takes us to this great theological truth. God is at work in you. Look at what Christ has accomplished for you. Work, work with God here in the present to defeat sin and work righteousness. Do all things without complaining. We might wonder, well, why couldn't he pick something else? Why, why, why do you have to choose complaining? We complain, <laughs> right? And then we'd be disobeying him. All things, he says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. That's a very broad category. It encompasses every trial. It encompasses every day. It encompasses every inconvenience, including people driving slow in the left lane. All things without grumbling. 
or complaining. This is, this is a difficult one for us in America. Friends, we live in a world, but we especially live in a society and a culture that is addicted to complaint. Even though we live in a time and in a place as difficult as the past year has been, we are still mounded about with God's blessings daily. And yet we are a culture that loves to complain about anything and everything. We complain about the weather, our friends, our family, our work, our pay, our siblings. It's normal for us often to even just begin conversations with greetings and then complain back and forth to one another. And once you notice that, once you see that, you can't unsee it. You can't unhear it. Watch for this. How many conversations do you know begin with, hey, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Man, the weather's been awful lately, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been really hard. And work has been pretty difficult. I've been really tired. Oh, yeah, well, that, me too, because the kids are just going crazy this week. And it just goes back and forth. And this is how we were so addicted to complaint. It's how we talk to one another in everyday life. And then when we run out of complaints with each other, we get on social media and read other people's complaints. This is, this is just the air that we breathe. And Paul comes to us and says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here's how you should do it. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. It doesn't mean that we can't recognize that there really, truly are hard providences to ask for help, to ask for prayer, or that we have to be blind to the fact that sometimes people wrong us. But Paul does have in mind the kind of attitude that kicks against God's providences and accuses God for the way that he's handling the world. This is the idea of complaining and disputing. That, the, that phrase there, complaining and disputing in the crooked generation in verse 15, should immediately call to mind the murmuring Israelites in the wilderness, which was we just read in our Old Testament lesson. In Deuteronomy 32, Five, the Israelites who would not enter the land are described as spotted children, a crooked and perverse generation. This is what Paul has in mind as the background as he writes to the Philippians saying, do all things without complaining or disputing. God had redeemed the Israelites with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm. He had saved them with the blood of the Passover lamb. He had drowned Pharaoh and his army in the sea. He tabernacled among them. He gave them bread from heaven and water to drink from a rock and his very presence in cloud and fire to guide them. And what did they do? We read about it in Exodus. They complained. They complained and grumbled. Oh, that we had died in Egypt when we had more bread, when things were easy, when we were slaves. Think of the blessings that we have in Christ, friends. The true Passover lamb has been slain for us. God pours his spirit into our hearts, giving us his love, empowering us to work. We have the table. We have the worship. We're surrounded, mounded by God's blessings. Every day we're given life and breath by him. And we too are prone to complain and disputing. Paul knows that this is a temptation for us. And Paul is alluding Again, subtly to the fact that the Philippians are facing pressure from a dominant and unsympathetic culture. We've read about this before. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says that they have adversaries. And then in verse 30, that they're undergoing the same conflict that Paul is. 
He knows that the cultural pressure, being in the Roman Empire, being surrounded by unbelievers that are sometimes hostile to the church, hostile to the faith, gives temptation for division and for complaint. I don't think that it's, um, I don't think that it's a coincidence that the only other time that Paul brings up the wilderness generation is in 1 Corinthians 10 when he's writing to a church that's plagued by dissension. What did we talk about last time? His great concern for unity in the church. That when we are given hard providences by God in life in general, and when you're facing a culture, when you're facing outside pressures from people that don't share the faith and that may be even hostile to the faith, the great temptation is to complain and and accuse God, to grumble and murmur against his providences, and to let division begin to form cracks in the fellowship. But we are to work out the salvation that God is giving us. This is the great encouragement, that God is at work in us. So let's take the grace that he is working in us and work that salvation out by not complaining. Instead of accommodating a sinful culture or retaliating or having internal conflict, we're called called to engage one another and our non-Christian neighbors with patient and selfless contentment, neither grumbling in self-pity or questioning God's purposes in the world. And when we do, what will be the result? What will happen? Look at verse 15. He says, That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He says, This, will, this attitude under these conditions with humble service, will shine like lights in the world. And the word lights there doesn't really do justice. It's more than lights. It's luminaries. It's heavenly bodies. It's stars. Stars in the cosmos, it says in Greek. Those who will not complain or sow dissension in difficult time will shine like stars in the night. And all the more brightly, the darker the times are. Isn't that true? It's much easier to see The stars at night, when you get outside of town, when there's less and less light, when it's darker and darker around, the stars are easier to see. It's like where my parents live up in northern Michigan. For miles and miles and miles and miles around, there's nothing but farmland and forests. And so every time we go up there for Christmas, I make sure at least once to sneak out in the middle of the night and look at the stars because it's amazing. It's the one time of the year where I can look up into the sky and see more white than dark. There's more stars, it seems, than area around it. And it's because the surrounding area is so dark. When we don't complain, when we don't sow dissension, when we serve selflessly and humbly in the face of opposition, and we love one another, a congregation shines like stars in a very, very dark night, particularly in our day and time. We are, as Paul says in another place, to be the letter of Christ, which everyone around us should be able to read. And so I want to challenge you. I want want you to ask yourself, 
your, your neighbors, your surrounding community here in Springfield, when they read our letter, what do they read? In order to reach our neighbors, we don't have to have gimmicks. We don't have to have tricks. We don't have to have crazy programs. We need to work out the salvation God is working in us with selfless service towards one another and towards those around us. And when we do, we will shine like stars at night. He continues in verse 16 with that idea saying, Holding fast or holding forth the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul knew that his work truly abided in people so that the Philippians did not continue strong with the Lord there was a sense in which his own ministry would be in vain. He was constantly looking forward to the day of Christ. And on that day, he wanted to see and know that his work in the Philippians, in all of his churches, would be fruitful. This is the heart of a true shepherd, to have burdens not only for oneself, but more so for others. To not be content with one's own relationship with God, but longing to see others bear fruit for the Lord that will abound to joy in the day of Christ. This is the heart that I pray for, for myself and for the elders, for the deacons, for all of you, that we would have Paul's pastoral heart for the Philippians, for one another. That we would be like the Apostle John who says, I have no greater joy, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. That we would take joy in the glory of Christ seen in the fruit of righteousness worked out in the lives of those with whom we are connected to Christ. I hope you all continue to pray with me for this. That we would take joy in seeing those that are sitting around you in this room work the righteousness of God. That God is working in them. That that fruit would come out in their life in humble service. And Paul continues with his appeal, and seals it in verse 17. Yes, if I am being poured out, he says, as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. He's looking forward to what might be his imminent martyrdom. And he expects the Philippians to be glad and rejoice with him. We talked about this a few weeks ago in chapter 1. Paul's not morbid. He's not asking the Philippians to take joy in his death simply. But Paul's life was going to be a sacrifice for Jesus Christ, either in life or in death, as he says in chapter 1, verse 20. And this was a source of deep gladness and joy for Paul. And he wants the Philippians, he wants us to adopt the same attitude. I may be poured out as a drink offering, he says, which is a sacrifice that accompanied another sacrifice in the Old Testament a sacrificial system. Drink offerings were, were offered at times with some of the other major sacrifices. The main sacrifice, the main thing, he says, is your faith, your progress and joy in the faith. It's your holding forth the word of life. It's you shining like stars. It's working out your salvation with fear and with trembling. I will rejoice, he says, if I can be spent for that, and you should rejoice with me. If our lives can be poured out in service to Christ and his people for the sake of the faith of others, 
in the glory of God. Friends, let's rejoice in that. There's really no better life. There's really no other Christian life. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And we pray that we would receive your grace with great gladness and with fear and trembling. That you would work in us to will and to do for your good pleasure. That you would accomplish your will. That you would provide us that we might walk in all of the good works that you have prepared for us so that there would be fruit and glory on the day of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has saved us with his blood. In his name we pray. Amen.